0: We have the knowledge already. Either we have to remember or we need to learn what we've already been given. There's nothing that new to be found. It's about remembering who we are. There's so much potency and power and mana that flows through the ocean. and It's uh, humbling, but
1: it, it makes you loyal. Welcome to The Ocean State of Mind. I'm your host, Damien Evans. I'm an educator and an ocean lover, investigating novel ways we can learn from and help sustain the health of our oceans by bringing awareness to our relationship with them. The Ocean State of Mind is a proud project of The Ocean Foundation. On today's episode, we have Luke Hostey, a veteran of the elite British commando unit the Royal Marines and co-founder of the ocean-focused impact agency Protect Blue. He shares how curiosity led him to war and how freeing his mind through breathwork and the art of freediving helped bring him home. If you've ever been interested in learning more about intentional breathwork, freediving, and living a life with intention and purpose, listen up. Luke and I met last fall in New York City when he and his business partner and my friend, Lindsay Hawken, were in New York City for the United Nations Climate Summit. I was meeting Lindsay to catch up and record her story for the podcast, which you'll have to listen to as well. We all shared a bottle of wine and delicious pizza, and after Lindsay and I talked, I said, you know, who should I have on the podcast next? She immediately turned with a smile and said, Damien, you should ask Luke about his relationship with the ocean. So, here it is. Enjoy. So, Luke, it's great to see you again. Why don't we start by just rewinding the tape from our conversation in New York? And if you would, share a bit about your relationship with the ocean and freediving, and then we can get into how that shaped your return from war as a soldier in the British Royal Marines. Sound good?
0: Yeah, sure. I'll kind of do a bit of a step back from there. I think it will help realize why i was able to step so deeply also quickly into my connection with the ocean when i was in the royal marines i grew up in southern africa and spent a lot of time in the bush so we had a lot of coastal relationships up in trans sky and eastern cape and mozambique and but the connection with i'd say fresh water also comes down to rivers the zambezi the nile and large lakes and so on but uh, even with the ocean the connection has always been a toyota hilux rugby shorts flip flops or trainers and a spear gun (laughs) and fins but it's always been about jumping in rougher seas and uh, yeah so fast forward all that time i've always played competitive water polo and swimming so always been very comfortable in the in the water and always spent the majority of my life in water and in the ocean but not in the traditional surfing sense because of that upbringing that's what took me to the royal marines and i just wanted to continue that way of life and push myself in my 20s just to see what i was capable of and
1: and luke can you can you describe the royal marines for those that may not be aware
0: yeah th- The Royal Marines is the phrase most used with the Royal Marines is it's a state of mind. And I remember sitting in a cinema and seeing an advert come on TV. And at the end of it, it was short, dark and vicious and very specific. And at the end, it just said 99.9% need not apply and <laughs> i think that's just kind of th- that, that 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 caught my that that, that caught my attention and <laughs> i think that's really it does a nice job on paving the most important thing about the raw marines which is the state of mind and and the mindset of the volunteers that go towards that kind of training. And for a lot of us, if not all of us, the rest of the armed services isn't an option. And it's not really a choice. We are an offensive ground taking uh, uh, commandos and we are raiders by tradition. And we actually traditionally belong to the Navy and you know if you reel back to d-day and those kind of raiding missions we were the first on the beach but since the wars of our time in the last two decades have been very much infantry led so we lent ourselves to the infantry war and i never although we do the training for raiding we we really were mostly trained and practiced in infantry war, which led us into Iraq and Afghan. So although it's not our traditional role as raiders, that's where we've been operating for the last couple of decades.
1: Thank you. And a lot of of our conversation was about your coming home. And I wonder if you can talk through what that journey has been like.
0: Yeah, I come from a background I come from an unconditional loving family. I was um, well educated. Joining the Marines was a luxury for me. A lot of the guys who are there, you know, they, they don't have that security if that's at home or kind of through job. So I think that kind of dedication and being shaped by the Royal Marines, I, I've always had a, a belonging outside of it. And I've always been shaped by my family and my cultures and my traditions. So when I went to the marines i I always needed the balance between not having that completely take over my mind and i was fair game to my whole family for a four-week period i couldn't be defensive but i would need to answer why i made that choice and if they knew that i could talk through and they could see that i was making that choice for the right reasons they were really concerned of my soul And they really understood at the end of it that I wasn't just jumping into it. I'm not a gun ho person, but my curiosity led me to war and not understanding the world we live in and understanding what's the difference between good or bad. And I really didn't want to get to the end of my life and realize just on my dying bed on what kind of life I should have lived. So I really believed in putting myself through the gauntlet at an at an at an early stage. But I also believed that I could survive it from a spiritual perspective. And so did my family. And that meant that I needed a very strong tool in order to lean on during that time, because it's a very intense environment. um, And it's a very intense process to shape yourself into a Royal Marine Commando. And it's like that for a reason. But I think the, as you said, the homecoming can be quite the contrast can be quite something and quite a shock to the system. And in some cases, with some guys, a car crash experience of leaving one world and entering the other. So I was very specific about using my breaks in the Royal Marines, like I was single. And if I wasn't totally within the commando world, I was free diving. And I built myself up over about five years before going on operational tour, where a lot of the guys kind of take their money and either go to Thailand or like, you know, do whatever's kind of that life. I I was pretty dedicated over that time to training myself up in, the art of free diving. And I took the mindset that the Royal Marines gave me and dedicated to kind of two paths running parallel to each other. And when I was actually in Afghan, I didn't have access to the ocean and especially for pre-deployment training beforehand for about a year and a half. But the five years leading up to there, I'd built myself up going to, through level one, level two, level three, and then then became an instructor in freediving and then did my level one and then i had my level two course which i had booked in uh eight weeks after coming back from operational tour and i'd kind of done that as my own fail safe to know that i was going to be held by something else on the other end that i had been dedicated to over that five-year period. So when I wasn't on the ground in Afghan, I would spend time in the compounds that we would take over, kind of as our checkpoints and our forward operating bases, and I would do apnea training. And that dry apnea training is still to kind of feed into the mammalian dive reflex and and also the, the mental visualization process that would enable me to plug back into my free diving and back into the ocean when I got home, which is incredibly powerful. I think a lot of people don't realize that although you are away from the ocean, the ocean gave me those skills. And that kept me very centered while being away. And I only got that from the ocean. So while being away from the ocean, For that long, it it gave me the the tools, the necessary tools in order to keep my sanity. I went back to a place that I used to return to over the five years, which was Dahab in the Red Sea in South Sinai in Egypt. And there's a place called, it's got, uh, what's Dahab's got the Blue Hole. The Great Blue Hole, when you got Dean's Blue Hole in Long Island Bahamas, you got the Great Blue Hole in of Belize. But the Hub Blue Hole was was my sanctuary and my energy point that I would re- return to. And instead of going off to Thailand or continuing or not or kind of start drinking, so I didn't drink for almost like a year while I was on operational service, I continued not to drink and stay in that state for another two months, two and a half months, and I went straight back into freediving. And I pretty much purged myself in the blue hole because the one thing about freediving is if you don't clear your mind, uh, you're not going to hit your depths. And... The thing with freediving is it it takes up to 40 to 50% of the oxygen in your body just to power your mind. So it doesn't really matter if your thoughts are positive or negative, you still need that same amount of energy or that same amount of fuel in order to actively problem solve and to use your brain. So-
1: Yeah, let me ask you a question. So I know the level one, two, and three training it's training that allows you to hit different depths. Can you talk about what those are and maybe just a little bit around what the types of training look like?
0: Yeah, with free diving, it's uh, it's line training. So you're kind of you've got a, a a buoyancy platform at the top of the water, and then you've got a weighted line that drops down to uh, varied depths depending on either the level that you're at or your capability so level one you kind of you're going to be playing and aiming for depths around 12 to 15 meters and then level two you're going to start pushing through to the 20 meter mark and then level three and level four you would depending depending on your capability and depending on your comfort not everyone hits those depths but it's it's to make you more effective at that kind of level of freediving but you're definitely going to start pushing towards that kind of 40 that 30 meter 40 meter mark so you're almost looking at it as like a 10 meter increments every time you're kind of moving up the depths and then Generally, uh, this isn't a rule of thumb that everyone, there's a lot of different perspectives in in freediving, but a lot of the kind of beliefs is, uh, you know, you need to be comfortable at the 60, 70 meter mark as an instructor in order to safely, look after others who are kind of doing any others or either helping other professional freedivers and being their safety for the, the, the depths that they're hitting. So I was slowly moving myself through the, through the marks of getting comfortable around the 60 and 70 meter mark, which in today's world of the freedivers, that that isn't much, <laughs> but for me at the time, especially because I held a lot of muscle mass, I was built, I wasn't built as a freediver, I was built as a soldier. And so you know, that that gave me my, my, my own challenges. So my, my mental state was more important than ever, because I had my own physical restrictions. So coming home from tour, it all seems to be that 10 months of a very kinetic tour, you know, I was from four two commando, and our unit we, we, we suffered seven casualties in our tour, it was a very kinetic tour. And there was a lot of process, a lot of process, you know, not only for me, but as our team on a whole. But by the time I got into the water, I realised that that time in the blue hole and that time spent in free diving, that I was going to end up reliving my tour in order to hit the depths. And that every dive, I was just hitting these blocks. And I, I just wasn't able to penetrate or even even navigate my own way around my mind. And I lent on uh, a coach who was living in Dahab at the time, who I'm still very close to today, called Sarah Campbell. And she runs a program called Discover Your Depths, and she worked very hard with me <laughs> to help me unlock my mental tools in order to and give me the breathing practices and tools in order to discover my depths and find ways around my own barricade. So I had my breakdowns right there in Dahab, like mental, physical, breathing, total like almost, uh, yeah, just total 100% breakdowns while reliving my tour. But by the time I got through that period in Dahab, which was just seven weeks of just free diving, there were no blind spots left. I got to the end of that process. And I I don't uh, like from today or any day past that period, there's nothing I don't understand of what happened to me of the decisions that I made. And I know there aren't any fractures in my foundation that may catch up to me one day and that I don't recognize and may hit me through a blind spot. And I'm very grateful for that. And it's something that I'm very clear on. And that gave me my peace. And it was in Dahab when I remember phoning my mom and uh, coming to this revelation of of realizing that also, number one, I was ready to walk a, a peaceful path. I believed that throwing myself, I used the word earlier, kind of a gauntlet. I believed I could take it, but I really, at, until that point, was quite happy to throw myself into th- uh, very dangerous situations or challenging situations that i believe i could of i could survive spiritually but in order for me to learn life's greatest lessons <laughs> and once i'd got to the other side of doing my level 2 instructors course it wasn't really about the skills and i also wasn't doing it actually to open up a freediving school i was doing it to learn as as in depth the art and about myself and i was very limited unless i learned what the instructors were were learning themselves. So yeah, that really, it it allowed me to not only kind of come out of that, I went straight back to the Marines, but I then very quickly turned to becoming a trauma and risk manager to help other rural Marines go through and realize what's perhaps kind of the barriers that they were coming up against. And the first question I would always ask them is, can you make sense of what has happened? Hmm if you can come back and go, a lot of bad shit happened, but I know I made the the best decision I could out of two bad decisions.
1: Mm -hmm. And thank you for that. That's amazing. Uh, Luke, thank you so much for sharing that story. There's a lot of questions I have, but the the veterans work uh, is so interesting and maybe we could talk a little bit more.
0: Yeah. I got, Injured after our tour, we then went to Norway to go do our Arctic warfare and survival training. And I was out there for six months and I kind of sustained an injury that ended up me having to have an operation on both my ankles because I had essentially broken both of them. So that I believe ended up being a, an intervention in my path. I was steamrolling kind of, I did... I went through commando training. I got sick in commando training. I got forced out of the military. And then I fought a medical battle to get back in. I redid commando training. I was lucky enough to get the King's badge, which allowed me to choose my path straight out of training. I went straight into a sniper's course, then deployed in that role, and then came out of there, went straight into Norway training, then became uh, a commander. And so I was very... I was in one mindset which was just to kind of climb and just keep on perfecting and sharpening my tools. So getting the injury that I sustained in Norway, I was very happy to have the arctic experience that I did, but it kind of halted me on I was pretty much in I was in a high gear going flat out in a very focused kind of career and it halted me and allowed me to step back and it pushed me straight into rehabilitation after I'd broken my ankles and put me amongst a lot of struggling soldiers who were and a lot of the guys who were actually from my my time on operations who were either dealing with thoracic injuries from gunshot wounds or mental injuries or back injuries a whole array of stuff and because of my skills by that point as a free diver I started to work with the physios and the rehabilitation instructors where they allowed me to run a breathing class for all new soldiers coming into rehabilitation. And that helped them in their role because I would teach diaphragmatic breathing, which would allow guys to recenter. So using diaphragmatic breathing instead of thoracic and teaching them the cycles of breathing one to two, which is breathing out twice as long as you breathe in, then that means you're dropping your heart rate with every breath, which means essentially you're teaching yourself how to heal with every breath. And then once you've got that cycle right of diaphragmatic breathing, any training that they put into, uh, you can almost say that they like a rifle, they've been zeroed and then any program you put them into is actually accurate data because they don't have irregular breathing where their BPM is up and down. They've actually now centered, they have their baseline, and then the data or their input is going to be accurate on a continuous basis. And then they allowed me to do two water sessions a week with the guys. And that's when I was able to start to move move forward with actually dealing with the guys where I would actually ask, I would would teach the breathing, I would teach basic free diving, and I'd do dynamic, which means you're just doing lengths of a pool. You're actually not dealing with the the extra dimension of depth, but you're just talking, you're dealing with the mental clarity and getting guys to kind of deal with being used to being in a non-supportive life form, underwater and being comfortable. So the guys would come up and you're like, why did you come up? And and goes, I don't know, I don't know. And getting guys to listen to their bodies, listen to the signs and symptoms and being able to clear their minds, and not and to ignore their natural instincts, which is like, I'll make it to the end, I'll make it to the end, or I can't make it to the end, you started to see this evolution and development of uh, beautiful free diving in patterns of these soldiers. But for me, free diving was a spiritual challenge. But for these guys, All I was doing was framing it in a physical challenge. I was going, listen, like, you're never going to be able to make it three or four or five lengths because your mind's in the way. You're eating all your fuels going to your brain because you're not shutting off your brain. Shut off your brain and you actually see what your body's capable of. And just by framing a physical challenge to these guys, they would have to go on that personal journey anyway which is just to still your mind, like just take the rest, take the healing time and then allow new thoughts to come in. And that would really affect the kind of, and intervene in the rut that a lot of the guys were.
1: Yeah, it's amazing. When we, when we were talking about this before, I think I was in the middle of uh, teacher training to become a mindfulness teacher. And you'd said, it was basically this is another door to get there that might be a bit more accessible to a soldiers looking for might need the competitive thought of I'm trying to go two laps or I'm trying to go three laps one question I have uh, for you when you're diving whether you're just in the pool doing dynamic free diving uh, or you know just doing laps or if you're out in the ocean what does it feel like for you and your body when you dip under the water?
0: Before I get into the water, I think it it becomes a, I become a lot switched off where my social skills take a dive (laughs) about like half an hour before I'm kind of going into the water. Within my job as a profession, the majority of my work is as a filmmaker and photographer in the water. And that means I can actually take that time to prep my housing and to just dive into my gear. And that becomes my mental buildup into the water. So my visualization of what I'm getting in to do and to just watch the ocean is really important part part of the process. When I get into the water and before I put my head under, I equalize my ears. (laughs) which is kind of step one, it's such a small thing. But like, if it's, you know, the biggest pressure change that you will feel is at the surface. So my mental respect for at the surface is in is much higher than when I start diving down. So the intensity of making sure that my respect for the ocean, that I'm okay, that I'm in the right mindset, and I'm physically kind of set myself up is as I drop my head down. And I'm really paying attention to all those things. And the final thing is to make sure that if I do the first step right at the the surface and the last thing, which is to equalize correctly, I'm gonna open the gateway for me to dive wherever I need to go. I get that wrong at the surface and I'm gonna have issues all the way down and I'm gonna always have to return. But if I get this first step right, then like dominoes, the rest of it will fall. And then as I do my duck dive, I'm still stuck with saying the same thing to me, which is just let go.
1: What is the, your typical last minute before you're about to do, say, a longer dive look like? Like what, is, what are you doing with your breathing specifically? I'm
0: putting my head under the water because we have the mammalian dive reflexes. The senses just below our eyes uh, are our kind of set. They are essential kind of, yeah, They are kind of sensors that allows us to know whether we're underwater or on water. So for example, if a free diver or anyone blacks out underwater, the first things we do is take off their mask and blow hard across the face, because the face knows that like 90% of the time, the person's going to come around just through that process, that's like the trigger switch to a body to say you're back at the surface. But if you don't remove that from the face, and you don't blow across the face, those are the first switches that will come off and the body will go, oh, it's it's actually okay to come out of this state because I'm no longer underwater. And 90% of the time, the person comes around and won't need CPR. So in reverse, getting ready to dive is that even if you're at home and you put on your heart rate monitor go run some cold water from the tap put it in a bucket and put your head in and take your breath up and just put your head underwater from someone who doesn't free dive you'll watch your heart rate drop by at least 20 bpm so we we kind of make tapping into all the natural gifts that we've been given which is our mammalian dive reflex and you know our body is equipped to be able to survive for longer periods in the water and also another part is kind of diurasis, is that when you start to dive all the blood rushes from your like uh, you get peripheral vas constriction so from your peripheries all your blood goes to your core and looks after your vital organs so your heart doesn't have to work as hard and that's why you kind of pee underwater, because your body actually thinks that you've got a lot more liquid in your body than you would normally do. And that's, that's the signs and the triggers that your 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 mammalian dive reflex is actually working. Is that when you start peering, you're like, cool, my body's actually pushing myself into into survival mode in order to make sure that I can dive. So I'm using my snorkel and I'm doing my breathe ups with my head in the water, because that's the most adaptive way that i'm going to dive but i'm also just by putting my head underwater and looking at what's going on and starting to navigate the bottom of the ocean all of those things is where i prefer to be than just having my head above the surface popping around
1: Mm -hmm. yeah it's amazing amazing what's baked in you know into our bodies from a long time ago
0: yeah i think it's you know, we kind of, we've been saying this recently of just talking about people's connection to the ocean. And uh, I think, you know, we, number one, we talk about talking about things positively, but also that we have the knowledge already, either we have to remember or we need to learn what we've already been given. There, there's nothing that new to be found. It's about remembering who we are or having the modesty to learn what our capabilities are and being able to listen, like for our bodies is to be able to listen to your signs and symptoms. But the education to understand what is capable is that all our gifts have already been given to us as whether we can tap into them or not. And the modesty comes and taking the time to go learn more about ourselves, not not find yourself, but remember who you are.
1: Yeah. You mentioned, and I know that much of your work now is in, in photography um, and, and video, which is a form, I suppose, of capturing a memory. And I, I wonder, is your interest in photography connected to this remembering? I think, listen, I,
0: I've always done fine art. I then studied fine art. I then studied art direction and design and, and what kept me sane, other than my, 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 my freediving tools is that in the back of my Bergen, you know, as Marines, we're, we're, we man carry everything, which means, you know, we've got everything we need on our back. We don't really need food. We're not vehicle born soldiers. So we've got three metal struts that are in the back of our Bergen and I pulled out mine and I used to keep an A3 drawing pad with me wherever I went. And then I'd also just as soon as we got into our sentry positions and we would put down our harbors in training and on operations, I would volunteer myself to go do all the go to the OPs and do all I'd do all the drawings for our our for our OP positions. Which means I would scan the landscape and restructure and redraw everything around our position or from our operational viewpoints because that was just my kind of uh, key and so our studio is just covered from all my drawings from all the years most of it as a soldier and photography for me was just another way of capturing or being able to translate a human story not necessarily just a beautiful landscape but being able to capture an emotion so i'm not much of a studio photographer as in like light and perfect scene i like to capture life as it is so i've always been addicted to telling a a story as raw and as honest as it is and that's what i'm addicted to but that came through my love of art and then a photo and then I would always i couldn't ever choose one photo it would be a collection of photos as almost like a storyboard which just projected me into film so i went to london film school and did documentary directing and production straight after the marines just to project myself forward into my storytelling capability that would allow me to move through my art and through my photography and into real-time documentary storytelling
1: That's so interesting. And now you're, you know, co-founder of the creative agency Protect Blue. Maybe talk a little bit about what the what the stories you are telling with your clients. Yeah, I mean, listen, I was I was kind of
0: with the work before, I had kind of two years before I met Lindsay and Lindsay approached me a couple of years back to help do a a visual art piece that would be underwater ocean made out of ocean plastics that would be an experience for people that were going to the plastic-free community, which she was one of the co-founders of, where they were getting their certificate from Surface Against Surge. So that ended up with Lindsay and I being uh, caught in a barn for two weeks, threading together nearly five and a half thousand plastic bottles and so we're sitting in this ocean of plastic bottles and we just had all the time in the world to talk and we realized really soon that our our pathways were very aligned in what we were wanting to achieve but ever since i've had my son kai i've been very focused on let me rewind my parents are teachers and all my living, all the different places I've lived in Southern Africa have been on schools. My parents kind of started orphanages and built schools and would hand them over to communities and we would move through that, that passage. So uh, I've always been brought up in the heart of education and also believing that at the heart of every community is education and is our children. And it does take a community to raise children. So I kind of always felt like, well, I went down through the art route and then through the kind of expedition soldiering route and in my family i would feel like an imposter by saying that i belonged in education because compared to the rest of my family I'm, i was the one that didn't take that path but i believed so much in the capacity for uh, true education and storytelling and awareness and that was that I thought by the end of my career, maybe in 15 years' time, I would be able to move towards or have the right to or figured out how to move into education in my work and use my storytelling capability to to educate others and start to work with the youth and, and do it within the environmental space. And I didn't know how to. And Lindsay rocked up <laughs> and said, and to just like totally just kind of like come in with, I'm like, oh, I've just been working on this and this and this and I do this with sub kids. And it was all just education. And she just written the most beautiful curriculum called ambassadors for the planet. And it just blew my mind. Like, listen, it was all kind of like, you know, in Dropbox and spreadsheets and stuff, which was like, got me so excited because I, I was just, and I, again, felt like a foster. And all I wanted to do was turn around and go like, can I do it? I'm, I'm like in. And even though we didn't say that, by within like two weeks, we had restructured everything, dropped all the other work that we were doing and kind of created Protect Blue. And we were, everything has just been like totally 50-50 because in order to bring this stuff to life, it was really, it was a beautiful thing to know that we couldn't do it without each other. And 50-50 was what, she did with her education and her strategy which is just another side and i was just asked all about how things look and the beauty of storytelling and the visualization and we threw these two two things together and shit just exploded like it just like the uh, the work and it will just and we just agreed. And we just we know how we wanted to look, we both dedicated to the brutal truth, no matter what someone believes that it should look like and real impact. And I was finding myself working in purpose driven work in education. And I swear to God, I was like, in 15 years time, I maybe if I get this right, I will have the privilege for Mm -hmm. my end of my career to kind of look like this. And I was just all of a sudden, just gifted this opportunity to permanently live in this space that I wouldn't have to feel like I was guessing it. But I was working with someone that gave me the confidence and the guidance to get educated and realize what real impact looked like. Our job is to be the guardians of the truth and help people find their path or find their perfect footing within their lane. So there's just not one day that we second guess our work. So our work is just totally this perfect mix match of we're both facilitators. And we both have this kind of mindset where we know how to work and we love working with people. And it allows us to work with this diversity of clients that like, for example, like we've just, we're now doing this continued work with Pitcairn Islanders in the middle of the South Pacific. Like uh, these guys are from the HMS Bounty. They're pretty much pirates. I work with my former, former veterans, John Slayer, who's my dive partner and I can just be thrown straight into those expeditions. It's just seamen. It's not We're still telling stories, but like, it's just about getting shit right. And, you know, and so it, we can go from hardcore expeditions and working with like basic pirates out in the South Pacific to really having, you know, all the way down to working with primary school children. And we've got this beautiful diversity in our work and purpose-driven brands, but we, we've, with, we, we work in a very specific lane, but the diversity within that lane makes it feel sometimes that we just do a hundred million different things, but we are actually very dedicated to the tools and the craft that we do and the the services that we offer people but the diversity of clients that are now working and we are able to help in the purpose uh, driven lane is quite quite something
1: yeah it's awesome I, I mean you've clearly found your purpose and you you talk about how the work helps others find their path and when i think of a couple of things you've said just in this conversation even at the beginning where you saw an advertisement for the royal marines and it said 99.9% need not apply and your hand went up so presumably part of the answer of how people find their path is a ton of commitment but i i wonder what else is needed curiosity <laughs> like so you, you said you said curiosity led you to war which was an amazing statement
0: yeah <laughs> but- <laughs> Listen, like curiosity, like when you when you starting to get confused of I'm sure I'm not the only one on this point when people are just you watch the news, you see these different perspectives, you see this onslaught on social media and you've got, you know, these thousand million different views on what is right and what's wrong and what people think what life you should be living and who you should, what you should be buying and what's important and how you become an influencer it's just it's confusing like i was confused years ago right if i had being exposed to what's now like i don't know i think it would kind of blow my mind you shouldn't have to question what you think is real right so i came back from war and what i understand from war is that i don't understand it and that's okay <laughs> it's just it's so it's so fucked up that and it's not it's not strictly just a religious war, and it's not a war versus good and evil. It's just it's power and it's money. And it's all those things. And it's so many things met into it that there actually wasn't a lesson to take away from it other than be okay, that you don't need to understand it. And I kind of came back from war. And I kind of allowed myself to not go I need to know the answer. But actually just step away from it and just go, this shit is so sideways. And so 360. And there's so many elements in this, you're not meant to know what it is, just crack on with what you're doing. And it life just became simpler. I'm like, right, okay, I'm responsible for myself. And the rest of what I know is real And where I get my connection is nature. Mm -hmm. And I'm sorry, I'll throw one more thing on there. It's just The only thing that is real is your breath. And the one thing I can control is my breath. Like everything else is a perception. And I understand that is my perception as well. Like I had a certain day today. So my mind is already warped into a certain mindset. And then I'm going to walk into a situation and I'm going to see it a certain way. It doesn't mean that's right or wrong. It doesn't mean what else someone else is right or wrong. And if I keep on chasing to figure out whether I'm right or wrong, that anxiety and that stress of going, is that person right? Am I right? Am I fooling myself? And just to be able to step back and go listen, either it hasn't happened yet, or it's happened. And if it's happened, there's a million perspectives that are right and mine can't even be the right one, what is real, my breath, what can I control my breathing cycle, and I just step straight back into this back pedal of a healing process and just take a moment out and I trust in that and those are my tools
1: so let me ask you this I I saw I don't remember where that you recently wrote about diving on the coral cathedrals of Henderson mm. and you shared that and I'm going to read what you wrote spiritually you haven't been absorbed by a force of living energy as much as you were diving through the seascapes off the island and i wonder what did it feel like to be absorbed by a force of living energy like that
0: like being thrown in a, a cauldron of that throws me back to that statement of not meant to understand what this all is and it's so, there's so much potency and power and mana that flows through the ocean and, you know, the, the, these points where this, uh, this tuple comes through and, you know, Henderson, luckily, you know, we're looking at visibility of over 70 meters visibility, right? So what we're looking at is these coral on the eastern side of Henderson Island. The The CFAS guys were with us and they were dropping, uh, Simeon was dropping his cameras down past 120 meters. And this coral structure was still 100% coral cover down to those depths. So the surge of coral was coming up. And you can see in some of the photos and like some people go, wow, those photos are amazing. And I'm just gutted the whole time. I'm like, I can't, if I could pour the energy that was in this place, and you can see how the coral grows, and then they all, all these different shapes and molds and just that they they all spiral together and you can see the energy forms coming from below the and the sides of the islands. And they all just formed into this cathedral that was like a three-story building. Like it's just absolutely like formidable. And it was almost the opposite of why I over the years have been addicted to blue holes. And I recently just went to Belize blue hole and why I'd go to Dahab and why I'd go to Uh, Long Island to Dean's Blue Hole is like you've got this surge of energy that is so concentrated in this area, you can feel it pulling you down. And in the case of Henderson, it was it was coming up. Through. Like the blue holes is like it feels like it's a magnet that's pulling you into the energy that's going into the center of the earth and wants to spit you out somewhere else on the other side. And for Henderson, it felt like all the energy force had been pulled through from these from these other centric points around the globe and was actually coming out at Henderson and was pouring through the, the crustal layers and through the mantle and through this coral formations. And we could just feel it in the water. And it's uh, uh, humbling, but it it makes you loyal. Like that's a weird thing to say. But like, the the, the loyalty of like, like, I hate the word bowed out, like it's bullshit, right? But loyal to serve. And that's what it kind of like, this is why we're here. And you almost start following, like we're diving or scuba diving, we start to follow the, the almost like the pattern of what the fish are doing, right? You almost like keep your difference and you start to almost move around it it's very kind of like a hypnotic motion that you end up falling into um that it pulls you into it's not something you even have to think of and it's uh it just goes this is you know this is what we're a part of and this is what we serve yeah and then you run out of air
1: (laughs) (laughs) i love it i love it Uh, Well, I feel like I've been absorbed by a force of living energy in the last hour. Thank you so much, Luke, for sharing your story and and just giving time to this. It's an incredible life you've lived already and I just, I can't wait to continue to observe and watch. This has been such a pleasure. Thank you so much for joining me today.
0: David, thank you so much for your time.
1: Yeah, thank you, Luke. Have a good rest of your day. Cool, speak soon. Wow, thank you, Luke, for sharing that inspirational story and your strategies for living your best life. And thanks for tuning in to another episode of Ocean State of Mind. Next up is Bonnie Sui. Bonnie is the author of the new book, Why We Swim. She is a lifelong swimmer, a surfer, mother and frequent contributor to the New York Times. Her book and our conversation look at the science and magic of water and our relationship with it. See you there.